Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. We know that climate change legislation is being hotly debated in Congress. We're getting prepared for the Copenhagen meetings in December, the international negotiations. And here in California, though we've passed climate change policy, there's a lot of uh, decisions still be to be made on the exact policy design, particularly with regard to the cap-and-trade system. So this is a really timely conference. We're really pleased to have folks from labor, folks from business, government, community groups, environmental groups, environmental justice uh, organizations, and we're looking forward to a really productive day with a lot of interchange and hopefully bringing you speakers who are deeply engaged in this issue, some of the latest cutting-edge research and uh, insight into the political process. Um, We want to welcome both those who are new to climate change policy. We know it's a steep learning curve. I know personally, because it was only about a year ago that I became enmeshed in this big area, Um, as well as those who have been enmeshed for years and are, are, are experts in the field. Um, we really think it's important to broaden the engagement of unions and of other groups in this uh, debate and in this set of decisions because it will affect our economy tremendously. It's a historic opportunity to deal with this critical issue of saving our planet but also to be able to shape an economic restructuring so that it's a good jobs economy. Um, I'd like to acknowledge our our co-sponsors and our funders, the Apollo Alliance, the California Labor Federation's Workforce and Economic Development Program, the State Building and Construction Trades Council of California, the UC Berkeley uh, Don Vile Center on Employment in the Green Economy, the Energy Foundation, the Environmental Justice and Climate Change Initiative, the French American Charitable Trust, PG&E, and Western Climate Advocates Network. I also want to say this event is certified as a green event by the UC Berkeley Sustainability Office. So please recycle. There's bins around them. Please uh, use them and also leave your name tag so we can recycle them. Air travel for the conference was offset through the UC Berkeley Climate Action Partnership, which is reducing, working to reduce greenhouse gas emissions here on campus. I want to also thank the conference organizers, Teresa Short, Cheryl Brown, and Sandra Laughlin, and especially Andrea Buffa, who really pulled this together. So let's give a hand to Andrea. She's right there. We'd like to uh, launch this with a welcome from two uh, really wonderful labor leaders that we have in the state. I'm first going to introduce Art Pulaski, who's the Executive Secretary-Treasurer of the California Labor Federation. The Federation represents 2.1 million members of 1,200 unions in manufacturing, public sector, construction, service, etc. Under Art's leadership, The Federation has helped to elect worker-friendly legislators and passed important laws protecting workers and uh, 
pushing uh, good jobs. Art has also taken leadership in the Apollo Alliance and in climate change uh, engagement by unions on a lot of levels. Uh, Art formed a, a, a committee of his executive council to address climate change, and under his leadership, unions engaged in the AB 32 uh, scoping plan implementation process here in California. Under his leadership, his workforce and economic development program has been uh, very active in uh, promoting training for the new green economy and building labor management partnerships so that unions can be actively engaged in reconstructing and constructing our clean energy economy. Uh, So with that, Art, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Carol. I'm delighted and honored to be here with you this timely moment. I'm coughing. I do not have that flu either. It's just some gunk that I have, so it's okay to shake my hand or sit next to me. Happy, by the way, Cinco de Mayo Day in honor of the great independence of our neighbors to the south at lunchtime. uh, Free beer, Tecate beer, will be distributed Uh, by the speaker that follows me, the head of the California Building Trades Council. (laughs) So thank you to Bob Balgenorth in advance. No cost to the university, of course. Um, And you'll find then that the afternoon speakers will be really terrific in particular. This is, this is, by the way, an impressive lineup, uh, a very impressive lineup uh, that I see on the agenda. And uh, I'm glad that you all have taken the time to be with us here today. We are on the verge of a a great transition. And I find it myself almost dizzying that overnight, a few months ago, we took a 180-degree turn in the policy of America, where... Uh, Previously, we had no sensibilities related to science on climate policy uh, to uh, a new administration that actually bases climate policy on irrefutable uh, science. And so we're off in a new direction now, and that's really exciting for us, although I want to raise some issues and some concerns, particularly to, uh, to the workforce in terms of how we manage the new green economy. And I want to say that traditionally, on behalf of, I think, both working people uh, and also environmentalists, uh, new industrial change, new industrial economies uh, have basically uh, uh, left us behind the curve. And this time, we want to think about how we get ahead of the curve on the new uh, emerging green economy. A couple of issues, uh, a a couple of observations. And the first is that workers and the disadvantaged disproportionately have have bared the hazards and the cost of industrial pollution. Second, of three things. Second, that high carbon emitting sectors of the economy uh, tend to have the higher union density. And so as, as we face this industrial change, this new economy, what does that do 
to the workforce. Uh, and third, working families uh, and the disadvantaged also bear the higher costs of economic transition and also rising energy costs. So in order to get ahead of this curve for us, we need to really see, I think, a conversion of the economic justice of the workforce and environmental justice community. Uh, I, I was, uh, I, I want to paraphrase uh, two great people. The first is Cesar Chavez, who said, it isn't the form that's going to make the difference. It isn't the rule or the procedure or the ideology that's going to make the difference, but it's human beings that will make the difference. Yesterday, I was with Carl Pope, the head of the Sierra Club, who said that we're not going to have environmental justice until, with this new economy, we have a more highly skilled workforce. He talked about, and it was fascinating to me, that he talked about how uh, some in this new green economy are looking for an unskilled workforce uh, because they want to push wages lower. But as a result of having an unskilled workforce, and he went back through history uh, uh, of the Industrial Revolution and talked about how an unskilled workforce actually takes away from the ability uh, for, uh, for industrial change and environmental change. It was a fascinating observation that Carl made, uh, but he, he made an irrefutable connection. Uh, between the environmental justice community and the workforce justice community, and how we won't be able to have the ideal development of, uh, of a green economy without a skilled workforce and without some voice at work and democracy at work to contribute to the development of the industries. There are three things that I'm particularly concerned about, uh, and that are that, and I hope that everybody thinks about it as we help to shape here, uh, this portion of the new economy. And the first is that a carbon-free economy isn't necessarily going to be more democratic. It isn't necessarily going to be more fair than the existing, car than the existing carbon-based economy. Second, that there's no guarantee that a markets alone based, that a market-based cap-and-trade method will reduce greenhouse gases, greenhouse gases, protect jobs, and distribute revenues broadly and productively. There are some real challenges about this cap-and-trade system, and we need to really address them now. And let me also say that in the spirit of what Karl Pope said, that the, the new green economy capitalists, the capital of the green economy, won't necessarily commit to good jobs and middle-class wages. And without that, as Karl Pope himself said, we will have failed. And so part of the challenge that we face is how we create this convergence, again, of 
environmental justice and uh, industrial workforce justice. So that's what I hope that we'll leave you with as you, as you explore uh, these notions uh, today. Uh, we have some really great thinkers uh, that, are gonna, that are both out there in the participatory audience and up here in terms of the presenters. So I hope that we will learn today how to bring together you know, the academy, uh, environmental justice, unions, uh, and business uh, to think about how we build a much stronger economy in this new green economy, and it will start here today. Uh, so we hope that you have a really great, productive uh, uh, session today, and we hope that you think about how we take it from today to the future. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot, Art. Um, and now I have the pleasure of introducing Bob Balganorth, the President of the State Building and Construction Trades Council of California. He has served in that position since 1993 and has been really an early leader on climate change policy and seen the opportunities for the construction trades in building this new green economy. Bob has a long history of alliances, building alliances with uh, environmental groups and he is um, actually, uh, in 2005, received the Brian Shear Environmental Leadership Award from the California League of Conservation Voters, and he now serves on the board of the League of Conservation Voters. Um, he's also a member of the California Workforce Investment Board and has a very active council in, in this um, right now. I know his folks are working really hard because I talk to them at, you know, 8 p.m., et cetera, and they're watching and making sure that the American Recovery Act funds are directed to uh, really constructing and putting the down payment on the green economy, good jobs and green jobs. Bob. Uh, also the guy buying beer at noon. Yeah, right. <laughs> Thank you very much and welcome. Now, Art is, uh, obviously does have the flu. He's got a severe fever and he's become delirious. <laughs> and I don't know why he asked to shake my hand just before he started clearing his throat. As Carol said, for many years the uh, state building trades has been a, a crusader for environmental causes. Uh, we believe that cleaning up the environment is just very good for jobs. It creates a lot of work for construction workers, and it makes the, it, it helps to grow the economy. It creates the best of all worlds. More work, cleaner environment, better pay. So that's why we've been involved in it. The new green economy is talking a lot about that we need to do retraining. For at least 10 years, building trades unions have been preparing for this in a lot of ways before it was fashionable to call it that. And you might be surprised to know that building trades unions collectively spend over $100 million a year on training apprentices and uh, retraining journeymen. That's uh, labor management funds, but it's run uh, primarily by, by uh, the trade instructors, and it's, uh, it's uh, what makes us the cutting edge of the, of the industry. Ninety-two percent of all apprentices go through a joint labor management apprenticeship program. 
the value of this conference is to the great diversity of speakers. You're going to have people here from labor unions, environmental groups, environmental justice groups, and a lot of other stakeholders. So we all have common interests that can be advanced most effectively by working together, and this is a good chance to work together and understand each other. We in the building trades have a long history of working with the environmental community. Matter of fact, uh, the building trades, through a group we call CURE, has worked with environmentalists for the last 10 years to make sure that we have cleaner power plants, uh, the power plants that we have worked to uh, secure have the highest the uh, highest standards of any power plants in the country, and it was accomplished because of our working with environmental organizations to to achieve that. And in the uh, end, we also got good jobs. Uh, all those jobs were built union. Another good example is LEAD, Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design, a voluntary program that raises the uh, that rates buildings for their environmental friendliness. Now we are of the opinion that lead standards, the highest lead standards, should be mandatory for all buildings in the state. One of our top priorities right now is to get Congress to pass a comprehensive energy clean energy plan. The American Clean Energy and Security Act is now before the House Energy and Commerce Committee. The plan will make America. A, uh, a leader for clean energy and development. It will develop new energy technologies, create American jobs, and strengthen our economy for years to come. It will increase the production of alternative energy, increase the efficiency of buildings and homes, and it will stimulate private investment in new technology and new industries. So to accomplish that, we're running media campaigns for this bill in districts of key members throughout the country. I'm proud that the uh, State Building Trades is a co-sponsor of this conference because it will give us an opportunity to address carbon pricing policies, including direct regulations that will reduce carbon emissions, and how to design these policies to create new jobs. There are a lot of people that want the jobs just to be, as Art alluded to, low-wage jobs and, and don't even care about having them in this state. So we're working very hard to try to make sure that that this new energy economy is one that will benefit all workers, and particularly workers in the state of California. So I won't uh, belabor these points anymore because you have some incredible speakers here today, and you, you have some very good workshops. And uh, I just wish you a, an extremely successful conference, and, uh, and I hope that you will get together and meet with each other, many of you don't know each other in this room, and this is a great opportunity to get together and learn from each other and form even better coalitions than we have before. So thank you very much for coming. Hi, everybody. I'm Andrea Buffa from the UC Berkeley Labor Center, and I'm going to help kick off the opening plenary for the conference. This is the plenary that's going to set the stage for the rest of the conference. And what it's going to do is give us an overview of some of the key issues, an overview of the latest in the climate change science, an overview of the economic impact, both of climate change policies, but also of climate change, if we don't implement any policies to address it. And then finally, an overview of um, climate change policies that put a price on carbon, and that is cap-and-trade, also known as cap-and-invest, cap-and-dividend, and a carbon tax. I also, just as a, an aside, want to say, and, and Bob brought it up as well, that um, 
we're focusing at this conference on policies that put a price on carbon, but that doesn't mean we're not going to talk about other climate change policies as well. A lot of us are very enthusiastic about energy efficiency policies, about renewable energy policies and public transit policies. We'll be addressing those as well. But it's also really important because these policies that propose putting a price on carbon are being either about to be implemented or proposed at the state level, at the regional level, at the national level, and the international level to, to really understand those policies and to understand the design options within them that can make a huge difference um, in terms not only of the environment but also their impact on working people and on low-income people. So we want to address those things within this conference as well. I'm going to pull the computer up, take a deep breath, and then I'm going to introduce the speakers for our opening plenary. So the first speaker on this panel is going to be Pyle Parekh. Pyle is a climate campaigner for International Rivers, which is based here in Berkeley, where she raises awareness about the fact that dams are emitters of the powerful greenhouse gas methane. Pyle holds a PhD in oceanography from MIT and the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. And Pyle's going to be the person who's giving us an overview of the latest climate change science. The second speaker, right next to Pyle, is uh, Dan Kamen. Dan is the founding director of the Renewable and Appropriate Energy Laboratory at UC Berkeley. His work is highly interdisciplinary and includes technical, economic, social, policy, and environmental analysis and activism of energy production and use. His focus is on renewable energy, energy policy, and development. And Dan's the one who's going to be giving us an overview of the impact of climate change on the economy if we don't do anything about it, and the impact, potential economic impact, of climate change policies. And obviously, these are themes that we're going to be dealing with throughout this conference. And as we go through the day, we're going to get deeper and deeper into the details of these things as our knowledge of these issues becomes greater. And then our final speaker on the plenary will be Holmes Hummel, who's sitting at the end. Holmes has been recognized by the Environmental Leadership Program as a visionary, action-oriented, emerging leader. Holmes has taught at UC Berkeley in the Energy Resources Group and has also taught a popular Climate Policy Design Pro series for, I think, hundreds of people in the San Francisco Bay Area. As a Congressional Science Fellow, Holmes developed key climate change policy provisions that are now included in the national climate change legislation that was introduced by Representatives Markey and Waxman. And on this plenary, Holmes is the one who's going to be giving us an overview of the climate change policies that put a price on carbon. So we're going to start out with Pyle. Come on up. Okay, uh, good morning. Uh, I'd like to thank Andrea for inviting me, and um, thanks for coming out uh, in the rain. I heard that there was a 30-minute uh, delay with BART, so I'm glad that uh, despite the fact many of you are here. So as Andrea said, I'm going to talk about the newest uh, data related to climate change. And so the outline of my talk is um, I want to start out showing you evidence of climate change, and then hopefully I will convince you that humans are indeed responsible uh, for these changes to climate that we've been observing. And then I want to look into the crystal ball and tell you um, what the projections are uh, in terms of what our climate is likely to look like in the next uh, 50 to 100 years. And lastly, I'd like to touch upon 
um, how we can avoid dangerous climate change, or what are the um, targets that we need to ensure that we stay beneath. Okay, let's start out with the evidence. Um, here, what I'm showing you is a plot of global average temperature over time. This is going from 1850 to the year 2000. And what you see here very clearly, especially starting in about 1910, that um, global average temperature is, uh, is clearly rising. And in fact, we know that temperature has already risen 0 0.75 uh, degrees Celsius, which is about 1.3 degrees Fahrenheit since uh, the start of the industrial period. And we are committed to at least a 1.2 degree Celsius or a 2 degree Fahrenheit warming. And this is due to the, um, the emissions that we have already put into the atmosphere. And the next panel, we see uh, something very similar for global uh, sea level. We see that it is also increasing. And in fact, between 1961 to 1992, we see that... Um, the rate of increase was about 0.07 inches per year, and since 1993, this rate of increase has actually almost doubled. And then, of course, it follows that if the climate is getting warmer, that we expect that the area that is covered by snow to be decreasing. Um, and here we're looking at uh, snow cover in the northern hemisphere, but in actuality, uh, it's also been observed that mountain glaciers as well as snow cover are uh, declining in both the northern and southern hemisphere. So another crucial piece of evidence that climate change is occurring is the melting of ice sheets. And here I'm showing you a figure of the Antarctic ice sheet. And you can kind of think of ice sheet melting as the canary in the coal mine. Um, because it's uh, what we notice here in this figure is we're looking at the change in the uh, elevation level of the ice sheet. So in areas where it's red, the ice sheet is actually growing. Where it's yellow, it's staying uh, stable. And if you take a focus in on this area, the West Antarctic ice sheet, we see actually that um, melting is occurring. And actually, scientists are quite concerned about this because in the last two years, we've realized that the melting is occurring at much faster rates than we predicted. And now if we take a look at uh, Greenland, we see something similar. Uh, the yellow uh, marked area is where from 1990, between 1992 and 2002, the region that we observed was melting every year during the um, seasonal melt and the onset of spring. But in 2002, scientists observed that the area that's melting is actually increasing and moving further inland. Now, all of you probably have read the papers and, and heard about uh, CO2 levels. I wanted to put the CO2 levels in context for you in terms of human history. You know, as humans, we, we live maybe 70 years, but the climate's been around a long time. And so what I'm showing you here are the atmospheric uh, CO2 records from ice cores that were taken in Antarctica. Essentially, what happens in an ice core is that air bubbles from the past get trapped. And so starting from the left-hand side, this is 650,000 years ago, and we move all the way to the right, and that's today. And what we see in terms of atmospheric CO2 is today the level is at 378 parts per million, and that is about 100 uh, parts per million higher 
than the Earth has experienced in the last 650,000 years. Uh, the other interesting point to notice here is you probably see uh, the red and the blue wiggles. The red wiggles represent the temperature in Antarctica. Uh, you probably notice that they, um, they follow one another, I, essentially that there's a correlation between the two. So this correlation wasn't lost on scientists, and scientists began to wonder if it's um, the increase in CO2 levels due to the burning of fossil fuel that is actually causing um, uh, the observed increase in temperature. And so what scientists did is they used a climate model, and they wanted to see if they could actually reproduce this increase in temperature that we've seen in the last uh, approximately 100 years. And when scientists in a model only account for natural variability, so there's some things in the climate that, that change naturally, such as the number of sunspots on the sun or volcanic eruptions, what they find is they, they cannot um, reproduce this increase in temperature that's happened in the last century. But the minute that uh, scientists include human influences, primarily production of greenhouse gases, primarily CO2 as well as dust, we see very nicely that the, uh, the model, which is the, the gray line, follows very carefully with the red line, which represents the observations. So I think this is very um, powerful slide because it, it shows very clearly that um, uh, CO2 is a major driver of the climate change that we are observing today. All right, so I've made it very clear, I hope, that it is in fact uh, because of industrialization that we are having climate change. But the, in terms of what is going to happen for the future, it depends on the decisions we make in terms of emission pathways. And so here what I'm showing you is a plot uh, that runs from 1900 to 2100, so into the future. And here are the possible, on the, the y-axis, the possible um, potential global surface warming that could occur. And these colored lines here represent different emission pathways or um, models of economic growth or development that we as a world can take. And so if we decide to follow the red line, which would essentially mean that um, we continue to emit uh, high levels of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases, we can expect that temperature by the year 2100 will be fairly high, um, on the order of almost uh, 7 degrees Fahrenheit. And the range here, which is this uh, gray box, actually can go up to about 10 degrees Fahrenheit. On the other hand... If, emission, if concentrations uh, were to stabilize at uh, the CO2 level of what we had in 2000, we see that relative uh, to 2000, that uh, temperature would increase maybe only about 1.5 degrees Fahrenheit. So these are clearly, uh, we have some possibilities here to um, decide uh, how far we are going to let the climate uh, sway from natural conditions. Okay, I want to show you some projections um, to drive home this point that depending on how much we decide to emit, that there will be different outcomes. So here what I'm showing you is temperature projections from climate models 
for a low, medium, and high greenhouse gas emission scenario. In the first case, if we look at, um, if we look at what we can expect in terms of temperature projections uh, for 2025, we see in all three scenarios that there is not much difference. But on the other hand, if we go towards the end of the um, century, we see that there is a huge difference between a low emission scenario and a high emission scenario. In the high emission scenario, um, you see that temperatures can be up to, for example, here in California, uh, an increase of 7 degrees Fahrenheit, and in the very high latitudes, over 10 degrees Fahrenheit. So if you could imagine that instead of, I think, the average temperature in uh, the Bay Area is perhaps 55 degrees Fahrenheit, that it would be 63 degrees. Um, that's a huge difference. And that, of course, will also have effects on um, rainfall. And so here is again from a model which is giving projections of changes in rainfall that could occur if we, if we follow a, a middle pathway in terms of um, emissions. And so what we see for the most part is that, and this is for, I think, for the year 2100, what we see is at very high latitudes, we will expect that rainfall will increase. But on the, other, on the flip side, in dry regions such as the Sahara or Australia, you can expect that those regions will become even drier and therefore exasperate um, a water shortage and drought conditions. So in terms of impacts, what we can expect is uh, there will be coral bleaching, um, and the extent of it will uh, matter as to... Um, as to how high temperature rises in the next century. Uh, we are putting, already putting, and we will continue to put ecosystems at risk. And um, there are estimates that that uh, two to three degrees Celsius increase, which is about, I think, five degrees Fahrenheit increase, that up to 30% of species um, could be at extreme risk for extinction. And we will have an increase in extreme weather events, such as extended droughts, as well as flooding. And now, if we take a closer look at impacts in our neck of the woods, uh, looking at the western North America, so the United States and Canada, as well as northern Mexico, we see, um, and this is a big issue for this area, that there will be decreased snowpack, which, we mean, which means there will potentially be more winter flooding but reduced summer flows, and it will essentially exasperate uh, the water shortages that we are already facing here in the state. Uh, we can also in, uh, expect, especially for those living probably in Los Angeles, an increased number, intensity, and duration of heat waves. And lastly, um, the stress that coastal regions face will also uh, be increased. Okay, so these, these are the potential projections. Everything that I showed you is very likely to happen, but the, uh, what's important is to what extent will it happen. And that's going to rest on how much we as a society um, decide that we can pollute. And so I'm showing you these very new results that actually just came out on Thursday. And what a group of scientists said is, okay, we want to see how much can we pollute if we want to have a good chance of um, keeping global average temperature below 2 degrees Celsius. 
I should tell you that uh, 2 degrees Celsius is 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit. It's actually a very arbitrary target. It doesn't mean that if we are below this that we will not have any catastrophic um, effects. It's actually completely arbitrary, but it's about over 100 governments in the world have said, okay, we would like to work towards this target. And quite frankly, uh, the countries that are most affected by uh, climate change, the small island states in December actually said, you know, this target should actually be 1.5 degrees. But what these scientists found uh, is that uh, between 2000 and 2050, we could uh, emit 1,000 billion tons, which is equivalent to 1 trillion tons of CO2. And we would have a 75% chance of staying below 2 degrees Celsius. 75%, it sounds, you know, it's like a passing mark in school. It sounds like not, not so bad. But it's important to remember that actually means that there's still one in four chance of going above this um, target. And I'd like to pose to you the question, uh, would you uh, board a bus if there was a one in four chance that the bus would uh, have a crash? So as a society, we have to really think, um, you know, it's, a, it's not a scientific question, it's a political question. Are we willing to accept this amount of uh, risk? And what the scientists have said is they show a potential uh, emissions trajectory, and that's here in the top panel, this, this blue curve. And what they um, suggest is that we need to peak emissions between 2015 and 2020, because if we don't do it, if we do it after that, we will have major problems, um, or it, we will have, it will cost a lot of money to bring down emissions in a short amount of time. Um, and beyond that, we have to move to almost a carbon-free economy uh, if we don't want to overstep this two-degree Celsius threshold. Now, for those of you that have maybe heard about people about talking about this... Um, Stabilization concentration in the atmosphere of 350 ppm. This is what uh, Dr. James Hansen has proposed as well as others. And I believe there's an organization with an office here in uh, the Bay Area called 350.org. Uh, what these scientists suggest that means we can pollute 750 billion tons between 2000 and 2050. And so uh, what that means is we improve uh, greatly our chances of staying below 2 degrees Celsius if we were to limit pollution to 750 uh, billion tons. The bad news is that already in the past nine years, 2000 to 2009, we have already polluted approximately 300 billion tons. So what that means is we need to move fast uh, if we want to um, really bring down emissions and have them peak at 2020, which is in 11 years. Okay, so in conclusion, climate change is happening. It's already happening. We can expect that there will be higher temperatures, sea level rise, changes in rainfall patterns, and more extreme weather events. On the other hand, we do have the ability to reduce greenhouse gas emissions uh, with the potential of limiting warming to 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit. But, you know, the, the science is very clear that we need to, um, we need to reduce our emissions um, quite a lot and very quickly. Um, 
but my, I'm going to leave it to my uh, fellow panelists to talk about how we can build the political will and what are some technological as well as economic pathways that can lead us to limiting uh, greenhouse gas emissions. So I thank you for your attention, and I look forward to the questions and discussion afterwards. So our next speaker is Dan Kamen. So, um, Dan, come on up. Okay, well, I'd also like to add my welcome and, uh, and our pleasure to see you all here today. And I'd like to uh, sort of be the bridging talk a little bit between where the climate science is where some of the international discussions are, and then what will be the bulk of today's conversation. And that's really how do we think about not only the, the job impacts, but the wider economic and political impacts of the types of more detailed policies that are embedded in the current bills and, and are, are in some of the bills that are being discussed. I was actually in um, Senator Specter's office an hour before he changed parties. And I must say, he knows how to keep a secret because it was a particularly uh, quiet day in the office. Um, he actually walked out and we ch he, he came out, we chatted for a bit while I was waiting for his climate staffer, went back in. His um, assistants were actually preparing invitations for a a meeting he was going to have in, in western Pennsylvania, 40 minutes later the announcement was made. So he, at least he knows how to uh, do the, uh, the, the politics of it well. And uh, his office and a number of others are working on some climate bills that we'll get to later on that differ somewhat from the Wax and Markey and other pieces. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to start off with a little bit of what's happening in the clean energy sector and then discuss a little bit of the international conversation and then come back to the U.S. issues and some of the, the, the regional ones that really shape where we are today. So if I just start off with sort of what's the, the bit of good news, and I'm going to bring this from a, a talk we just gave at the World Bank on energy development with an Africa focus. Um, these are the growth rates globally today for investment in a number of sectors. And so this is the compound annual growth rate in wind, in solar, in, 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 sort of in, in work on fuel cells, in work on ocean energy, in bioenergy, in efficiency, and then in the service sector. And on average, the growth rates are good. So if one is selective, you say, oh, this is very exciting. We have compound annual growth rates that are really ramping up dramatically. There's a number of good pieces of that story. There are certainly growing industries and essentially all of the technology spaces that we're going to need to draw on. There is bits or lots of good news. The wind industry, the solar thermal industry, the photovoltaics industry, uh, the deep geothermal industries, energy efficiency, the one that unfortunately, well, I'll come back to it, but there's essentially a nice pattern of strong growth. And so there is not only a technology base, but also an economic base of these clean tech companies that one can really draw on to both make the case and implement the changes that we're going to have to get to that we've, we've heard illustrated in the, in the first talk. I do notice, though, as someone who tries to work on essentially all of these with a bit of a focus in, in wind and solar, that the lesson on energy efficiency has not, has not been well learned. Well, there, all the areas show some action. The, the, the sector that A, enables many of the others, B, is the most shovel or wiring or conduit or drywall ready, and the one that, in fact, if you don't get efficiency right, it effectively doesn't matter how you do in the others. So we have a, uh, a sort of the classic mismatch of there's lots of exciting technologies. The one that may be you know, said not, not in Berkeley but is the most boring is the one that facilitates the most and is not yet 
fully on the table. And there are really strong regional issues. I, again, I was highlighting this at Africa Day at the World Bank, highlighting what a tiny percentage of these growth technologies are actually taking place in the areas that are trying to build infrastructure the most quickly. Um, there, is essentially, there is no major wind companies in Africa, um, despite the fact that wind is growing by 20% per year worldwide. Um, there is two essential uh, t- uh, solar companies in, in, all, in all of the continent of Africa actually building solar cells. So there's a regional disparity. But there is a technology base that one can all draw on. So there's a good start. So that's the good news. Let me now do the piece that connects more to the talk you just heard and highlight while the conversation in the United States has thankfully done an absolute about-face, as, as, as we heard in the opening comments from Art, um, after the election and the, uh, and the election of President Obama, which still is fun to say. Um, but the global message is still very bleak in terms of connecting what we're doing and what the climate and what the, glo- what the wider political science says. If we talk about the types of limitations on emissions that the science community is saying, and I am currently the chair of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's Renewable Energy uh, sort of Program. There's a series of chapters being written. Some of you may be involved in as- uh, different aspects. I run the policy chapter right now. If we talk about the sorts of limitations that are consistent with the science, not necessarily with the politics, we get a global picture that looks more like this. Uh, this is done by a number of, of colleagues of, of our Shivan Kartha um, at TELUS in Boston and Paul Baer at EcoEquity and now at, at Georgia Tech University, um, a graduate of Berkeley. Um, if I just highlight the sort of numbers that, we, that, that we, the science says, and that's on the order of a two degree or so maximum rise, not a suggested recommended speed limit kind of thing where 75 is fine and 55 is the law, but one that's much more consistent with beyond the two to, uh, to a, a very, a, only a small bit larger increase in temperature, we will see truly dramatic changes, dwarfing some of the ones you saw actually in the previous slides. Divvying up the path that we're on, if you think about this kind of pathway, it unfortunately says that to leave any room for developing countries to grow, the sorts of emissions pathways that the science says are like the blue for the developed nations. Now, there are no bills being even discussed in the United States that do anything that even approximate the kind of path we see here, with essentially no more growth in emissions. It's just simply not on the table right now. And so as exciting, as important as the discussion today is in terms of the Waxman-Markey bill, the features to get us going, and we have to get through that stage, it's critically important to know that the climate science is saying a much more dire story. And the types of cuts that we're going to need in emissions are not yet globally on the map. They're on the map in Norway. They're on the map in Austria. They're on the map in Humboldt County. They're not on the global agenda. And so I'll come back to that in a bit. But it's really critical to recognize that any growth in emissions in developing countries, which we're essentially committed to now, require policy changes and technology implementation that is far beyond what we're in conversation of right now. Another way to picture that is if we were to sort of divvy up who on the planet has the resources to invest anything in this, you get a picture that looks a little bit like this, where if you put a threshold out for funds to meet basic needs, 
and then you look at what percentage of the population, just as three random countries chosen in India, China, and the United States, have an ability to invest beyond a minimum economic and resource threshold, there is a huge, huge need to think much more aggressively than anyone is doing in the open about the types of technology transitions and the types of investments in green jobs that we're going to need to actually get there. So my, my news is perhaps even worse than the climate news because it says that while well, the climate story is one thing, we have an ability to ignore that one. To try to translate this into policy, we're going to have to find ways not to ignore it. Now, thankfully, the news isn't all bad. We do have places that are sort of on the charts, and as, all, as many of you know who've worked on AB 32 and a number of the other regional laws, we do have have trajectories that are at least talking about the right order of magnitude. So California's AB 32 doesn't say cut emissions from our baseline, the 1990. It says over the next 11 years, get back to that baseline. And if you look not too closely at the graph, you'll notice that we are essentially at the needed peak year emission numbers already, the green curve, right? Well, California has great paperwork. We do have some impressive growth areas. We have not actually cut emissions yet. And so to talk about what will have to happen both at the U.S. level and internationally, we're far from the types of changes we're going to have to see. In fact, if I go beyond the California story, which is heroic in itself, we do see some tremendous growth in technologies. Unfortunately, it's nowhere near enough. So we heard an opening comment that people critically matter in the process, and I certainly agree with that. The combination of people trying things and legislation that we work with is a critical part of the story. So if we look at what's happened in California, this is the installation rate of new solar and wind technology over the past several years. And many people were tremendously skeptical that AB32 would make much difference. If you look at the 30 to 100 megawatts of new renewable energy installed in California up until 2007 when AB32 was passed, I think one should at least, you know, even the biggest skeptic has to recognize that good legislation can really jumpstart things. So California had a five-fold increase, not 5%, but a five-fold increase in solar and wind installations that somehow magically directly correlated with passage of our greenhouse gas law. It's an incredible start, and the numbers are even a little bit better if you look at the number of, of proposals and contracts in front of our Public Utilities Commission for review right now. There's over 3,000 megawatts of new solar and wind in front of the PUC for review and installation that's going on this year, and unfortunately it won't happen due to a combination of the economic downturn and just not all projects move ahead as that we have over 20,000 megawatts of new orders that have been proposed for 2010. Now, what fraction of those would get built? I would estimate it would be on the 10% level or so, uh, similar to 2009. But what this says is a combination of an industry that's ready to go, legislation that really pushes things forward, can dramatically change the story. And California is a real example of that combination of the green tech sector ready to take off and legislation that enables it. And we have lots of examples. These are wind tur turbines, and these are in fact imported from Denmark, arriving in the port of Oakland. And the global industry is ready. The fact that we were asleep at the switch, not just for the uh, eight years of President Bush, but for a good chunk of the years before that as well. Unfortunately, we are way behind the curve in the technology in the manufacturing base. We are a great spot in the R&D base. If I take the California story and roll it up to the national scale, this is our 
historic emissions of greenhouse gases for the United States. We're at about 2 billion tons a year. Our Bush as, I mean, business as usual plan is plotted in the dotted line, a path that we won't follow, thankfully, now. The path that President Obama has put us on is the red line here, which does two critical things. One, the, uh, the president's plan so far says we will return in, 19, in 2050 back to the levels that the IPCC has said we need to hit. That's this 80% reduction. That's the same target as California has. A number of cities around the country, a number of other states have this 80% reduction target. California in AB32 passes through the red box there that says a return to 1990 levels in 2020. There is not yet an Obama administration so-called midterm target to be negotiated to be hopefully passed in Copenhagen in December, but something in this range is needed. And what's in this range? California has said 1990 levels by 2020. The European Union is discussing passing through this orange box, and that's 25 to 40 percent reduction by 2020 or 2025 to be negotiated at, at, at the meeting coming up in, in Copenhagen. And I want to highlight this because it does two critical things. One, it sets the proper endpoint, 80% or more reductions. Two, it highlights what some, some key players, California, the United States, and the EU are talking about in terms of their ranges. And what's critical now is to marshal every bit of the technology base of the potential for green job growth to counteract what unfortunately is also going on. And this shows forecast and planned new coal plants around the world, highlighting China, economies in transition, OECD, and India. And what you note is that this curve alone essentially makes everything we've talked about impossible. If we build a trillion dollars of new coal plants or more without carbon capture, we will essentially make that climate story impossible. And so the need to build these clean tech companies now and to deploy it is vital. And unfortunately, the momentum here is very large. We also have a similar story in terms of getting dirtier and dirtier oils from abroad. And there is, of course, a minor story on security issues that comes up when you look at things you can find on the streets of Berkeley. Um, and in fact, right now, the potential alliance between the climate community and the security community is one that should take seriously because both of these play into the story. I will only flash them up so that they're in the slide deck for you all later on, but the growth of these technologies in poor developing countries is an impressive part of the story today. Kenya right now has the largest use of photovoltaics for electricity of any country on earth. Not the most power, but the most individual homes get their electricity from, uh, from photovoltaics in Kenya than anywhere else. Done in an un- um, unsubsidized, very freewheeling rural market where the growth in the sales of very low-cost solar panels has been a dramatic change. It's the kind of thing that manufacturing in the United States, in Silicon Valley, in the Austin Basin, and Route 120 in Boston can dramatically facilitate building jobs and, at the same time, dramatically replacing plans for dirty infrastructure with a clean one. And we've been studying the Kenya market for now two decades. It is spread virally to other countries in Africa following on this model. There are similar stories elsewhere. The efforts to build local grids using wind power and biofuels. This is an example from the Atlantic coast, the English-speaking coast of Nicaragua, where an, N or an NGO with a strong Berkeley tie, um, Blue Energy, has worked with a number of groups to both 
locally manufacture, very low cost, and very, very, um, very, very indigenously built wind turbines and build little mini grids, and they're finding dramatic success. It's a story you see in parts of South America, you see in parts of Southeast Asia. They're the examples of what is coming. And the sort of thing that we have done over the past decade or so is to highlight these stories and in a bottom-up way to kind of quantify how much of a growth we've seen in these areas. And so um, starting in early 2001, we started working on a series of reports for the U.S. Senate. Um, our first sort of major paper on this was in 2004, where we highlighted the job potential in the renewable energy area, again, not based on models, based on empirical observations of companies in the U.S. and outside. And what we see are the kind of the standard numbers that many people quote today, um, and that is in the renewable energy area, you see a dramatic jobs dividend. In some cases, a factor of four to five times more jobs per dollar invested in renewable energy than in fossil fuels. It's about a factor of five for solar, about a factor of two and three for efficiency. It's about a factor of two for wind. So there really is a significant jobs benefit to get there. Now, where those jobs go, how many types of jobs we get, and what fraction of those are labor, are U.S.-based, et cetera, is much of the discussion for today. But one wants to recognize that the global base for doing this is, in fact, there. And while this jobs dividend won't last forever, I, this jobs benefit per dollar invested is going to decline over time as these technologies mature. For the states and countries that act early, there really is a benefit to doing so. We will release our third iteration of this report later this month at the World Business Summit on Climate Change. Um, at the World Business Summit, which is hopefully the interim step between the scientific summit that happened in March and the major um, negotiation, the COP15 summit in December, we'll have a huge collection of business leaders, the UN Secretary General and others will be there to really highlight these stories. And again, at that event, we will release our next version of this report that does a great deal more on local job creation in Southeast Asia, in Africa, looks at what's going on in the carbon capture fields, look, what, look what's going on in terms of nuclear, wind, et cetera. And we'll have versions of that report that can be available to any of you who are interested in just about two weeks' time when it gets released at the summit. So I'd like to stop there, and hopefully I've tried to set the stage a little bit for not only the needs base for doing this, but also what is the technology base, and again, some of the, the story on where these jobs can be created and how much of a benefit there really is to being the early actors to make this happen. Thank you very much. Good morning. I am very, very pleased to be a part of this plenary session. I want to thank the organizers once again. It is an elusive opportunity to have such a cross-section of interests with us. I respect the time and the demands on the time of all the people who have chosen to be with us for this morning and for the whole day. And for my part of the plenary this morning, I have been charged with uh, setting the stage with a number of very key questions about price-based policies, which is the purpose of the day together. So major topics like carbon tax, cap and trade, cap and dividend, how you uh, spend revenues, and so on and so forth. That's what I'm going to try to cover here very quickly. All of these visual aids are available for your use online. So if you're a jockey on these issues and you think you can sleep right through it, see if these visual aids don't help you in actually making the case and sharing information with your colleagues and peers. You can find all of it if you search Google for climate policy design. 
It's the first search result for climate policy design on Google. These, these uh, visual aids and others I'll be produce, presenting at two different sessions today will be posted under the recent posts. So the, the four areas that we will cover just now is the purpose, the purpose of a price-based policy, who pays for a carbon price, how much do people pay, and who decides, and what's the spending plan. So I'm going to start with the purpose. This is the only slide that's stacked with text, so bear with, the illustrations follow. The basic logic behind price-based policies, which I want to uh, reiterate Andrea's uh, earlier disclaimer, is not necessarily our first choice, but it may be an essential part of a policy platform to address climate change. We have to ask the questions, why are people using fossil fuels? And a pragmatist's perspective is, well, the benefit of the work produced from those products exceeds the burden that individual users bear for their consumption. We go to the gas station and buy gasoline because the benefit we get versus the cost we pay for it is greater. And we continue to buy gasoline until that's not true. But consumers, including companies, because we have industrial consumers, don't pay for climate change damages. They use the sky as a free sewer and jeopardize all life on Earth, the way that Payal described. This is a serious and arresting perspective that causes us to reconsider the use of the sky as a free sewer. As a result, the private costs of our consumption of fossil fuels far are far less than the actual social costs, and Dan gave you the case for why there's a justice perspective on that, that actually the social cost borne by people in developing countries is even greater than that here in the United States, and that puts additional burden on the Americans to come to the table. When climate change damages are externalized from fossil fuel prices, society is basically subsidizing fossil fuel users by setting the price of pollution at zero. So we have to start at a very first step. Do we believe that polluting the sky should be free? Should the pollution price be zero? If you believe that it should be zero, you go along a whole other track of negotiation around policy and what to do about climate change. If you don't believe the price should be zero, then you're faced with the questions, well, what should the price be? How do we add a price to pollution so that people who trade in fossil fuels and other things that produce greenhouse gases internalize the full cost of climate change and climate risks that they impose on the rest of us and people around the world? I hope this is a very useful frame for thinking about why we have to actually step to the question of what is an appropriate price on carbon dioxide. The purpose of the price-based policy, then, is to change people's choices so that we move toward a clean energy economy as a least-cost option that is in society's best interest. That's the purpose of a price-based climate policy. The basic theory and rationale of it is that as we want greenhouse gas emissions to be reduced over time, we have a rising price signal that discourages people from engaging in polluting behavior. This is a 100-year time span, a theoretical projection of what it could be like to achieve stabilization for greenhouse gas emissions in our atmosphere using a price-based policy. But on the right-hand side, I've put question marks. What is the price on carbon that would give us this kind of trajectory of a declining greenhouse gas emissions profile for the rest of all of our careers? The first question to ask is, how far do we want to reduce demand for pollution? And the second question is, then how high should the price be 
in order to reduce that quantity of pollution. So let me repeat that. If you, if you listen to Pyle's presentation and you said, gosh, we just don't want that kind of future, you have to ask yourself, what is the appropriate target? So this is where the whole debate about targets come in. The first question is, how far do we reduce our emissions? And then the second question related to price-based policies is in, how high does the price have to be to discourage people from polluting fast enough to reach those targets? The choice of quantity, therefore, affects the optimal price or the carbon price at which people will actually respond and change their behavior, change their investment choices. So who should decide what that price is and how? That is where proponents of a tax and cap and trade diverge. Up until now, they've had identical lines of logic. They get to the question of who should decide what the carbon price should be and how should they decide. This is where carbon tax proponents and cap and trade proponents diverge. So let's continue actually on the path that they share about who pays, because there actually is even more territory where they agree. This is a diagram that shows greenhouse gas emissions for our American economy. Over here are the sectors of the economy, where you can see transportation, about 30% of our greenhouse gas emissions, electricity, about 40%. Natural gas uh, from residential and consumers is next, followed by industry. Now, on the right-hand side, you can see that the bulk of our greenhouse gas emissions are from carbon dioxide. So hopefully that makes this crazy-looking diagram make sense to you. And now let me just show you what's happening. So the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative is a cap-and-trade program started by 11 New England states that agreed to start with electricity only. They put a cap, and frankly, a weak cap, on electricity and the electric power sector only. And they capped emissions there, and that created a price for carbon for them in their market. Nationally, we have a different perspective, which is that in order to actually meet our national targets, we need a broader coverage. Coverage is a vocabulary term that's important to the definition of price-based policies. What do you cover? Price-based policies can only cover sectors in which greenhouse gases can be reliably measured reported, and verified. This is why the agricultural sector is routinely excluded from cap-and-trade programs because it's very difficult to measure, report, and verify greenhouse gas emissions from agricultural sector uh, polluters, for instance, but not other industrial polluters for which there are smokestacks and we can measure, verify, and report their emissions. So this is what a cap looks like from a national policy perspective. What about what's left? Oh, those are the offsets. The supply of potential reductions in greenhouse gases that could be achieved outside of the cap and counted towards progress inside the cap. I'm going to be discussing offsets later in the panel just after this. It's the last I'm going to say about a controversial topic on cap and trade, but you're welcome to pursue it in Q&A or at 10.30. The next question that both tax and trade advocates have to uh, address is, Who pays at what point? At what point in supply chain of fossil fuels in particular do we actually say ante up and pay? This is a picture of the supply chain for fossil fuels from the left, fuel extraction, down to the right. Those of us who pay our utility bills are consumers. We have to make a choice at which point we come and collect money and say, here's where we charge you for using the greenhouse gases, uh, using the atmosphere as a sewer for greenhouse gases. For oil and gas, the point of regulation is essentially fuel processing and distribution. That's refineries, the point at which gasoline leaves the gate from the Richmond refinery, 
or the point of distribution for natural gas that's when PG&E has natural gas and it's about to sell it to customers. Power plants and industrial polluters are the uh, choice of point of regulation for electricity and on-site emissions. Power plants already report greenhouse gas pollution every 60 minutes to the EPA automatically. And there's only 1,500 power plants in the country that matter. They make up more than 99% of the greenhouse gas pollution from that sector. That is why we choose a downstream point of regulation for electric power sector. For industrial polluters, there are only a very few industrial pollution sources that would qualify as large enough to be regulated under a cap, and all of them are already covered under the Clean Air Act, already reporting their emissions routinely, literally hourly. That's why they are named as points of regulation. The purpose of a price-based policy is to have it affect as many purchases as possible all the way down to consumers. It is not a service to humanity to shield consumers from the price of their pollution. That's the point of the policy. It's not helpful and it doesn't advance the cause for social justice to actually try to subsidize consumers to prevent them from seeing the price. It is important, however, to maintain household budgets for working class families. And I'm going to come back to that point when I talk about the spending plan. So who pays? To close this section, I want to point out that all of the following policy design decisions are necessary, whether you care that the price is established by a tax or a cap-and-trade system. Which greenhouse gases would be subject? What part of the economy is in the scope? What's the point of regulation along the line of, of fossil fuel production and consumption? And who are the covered entities? If anyone tries to tell you that a carbon tax is really much simpler, we should give up this cap-and-trade thing, it's too complicated, let me assure you all of these same political battles have to be fought for a carbon tax. It's not that much of a shortcut politically to come to a carbon tax. So the big wrangle, how much, what is the appropriate carbon price, and who decides? I'm going to use a little bit of Econ 101, which I hope will be... I hope will be helpful. On the horizontal axis, we have the quantity of allowed emissions, and on the vertical axis, the price of carbon. If you went to the farmer's market and wanted to buy a certain number of carrots, you might follow a similar kind of logic that I will now describe. Your demand is proportional, or in, it's relative to your quantity. Uh, your price that you're willing to pay is proportional to your quantity, meaning that if I said, look, I've got 50 units of stuff and they're $50 a piece, you'll say, okay, I'll take 50 of those. But if I told you, hey, bargain, basement bargain, today the price is 20, you say, hmm, maybe I'll take twice as many today. This is a basic plotting of a demand curve. We can do this for just about anything you buy from T-shirts to Cheerios. Same thing for supply. The suppliers will basically say, well, if you're going to pay me $20, I'll make 50 widgets. Hey, but if you pay me $50, I'll give you 100 This is the basic Econ 101 premise that works at every farmer's market you may ever go to to buy, bargain, or haggle over anything. And it is exactly where demand crosses supply that we find market prices. So the question resolves back to how do we define what a carbon price would be? Both a tax and cap and trade depend on markets. Let me show you how. The difference between the carbon cap and the carbon tax is that the carbon cap makes the quantity of allowed emissions fixed. 
The yellow line is vertical, meaning the quantity is fixed. The United States government says, look, this is the fixed amount that we are going to allow ourselves to pollute the sky this year. And now it is up to you, consumers, to decide how much you are willing to pay in order to buy the necessary reductions for us to meet that cap. Alternatively, if we want a tax, the United States government says, okay, folks, here is the maximum amount of money that we are willing to collect or make you pay for pollution, and you are welcome to pollute as much as you want as long as you're willing to pay this price. The contrast between these two things is exactly the difference between a carbon tax policy and a cap-and-trade policy. And it gets down to a fundamental philosophical conversation about risk, where risk is actually based on two factors, the likelihood that something will happen and the consequence that will happen. So let me pose these two questions. Should we let, uh, should we let the government set the quantity and have us use markets to determine the price for a scarce resource? Or should we set the price via government and let the markets determine the quantity? Carbon tax is still a market-based mechanism for determining how much pollution we pollute. There is no such thing as a non-market-based tax. The market will determine how much we pollute if we set the price. Because we have a risk exposure to climate change, we have to ask ourselves then which of these two pictures poses us with more risk exposure, poses more of a risk to society. On the left-hand side, the risk that we face with a carbon cap is that we might face, we might actually set the cap too tight and therefore the price would be too high. That's the political risk. I should say, what's the political risk? Not so the political risk is that the cap might be set too tight and the price will be too high. This is the anxiety that populists in America do bring to our attention. Oh my goodness, what happens if the price is too high? If the price is too high, we lose control of the policy and we're worse off than we started. So we have to ask ourselves, what is the chance that the United States government is going to set a target that is too tight? Okay, let's do the converse question. On the right-hand side, the risk that we face with the cap is that the tax will be set too low and the quantity of pollution will be too high. As a result, we'll be facing catastrophic climate risk. What are the chances that the United States government is going to set a tax that is too low to meet an aggressive target like Payal and Dan told us is necessary? 100%. This is why, this is why people who have looked at the issue come back over and over again to cap and trade as a preferred alternative to a carbon tax. I know it's not necessarily comfortable for people who aren't very big fans of tax policy, but this is the line of logic. It's about risk management for society and planet Earth. This is the line of logic that you can review on your own. I need to continue to illustrate for you all how then a cap-and-trade program sets a price on carbon. Basically, I use the analogy of musical chairs for managed scarcity. It was my first introduction, and every six-year-old can recognize the game. Basically, if you have an allowance, you have a chair. You name who the polluters are that are at the points of regulation. Here I've given you a sample. The government establishes a declining cap that's announced and in advance. They take away a certain number of allowances each year so less pollution is allowed. 
and the polluters basically compete then to grab on to the available chairs. And at the end of each round, somebody is out a chair. (laughs) This happens to be the largest polluter in the electric power sector in the United States. Out one chair, one ton. What will it do? It will have to decide for itself whether to invest in its own innovation or pay somebody else to invest in their innovation. AEP here says, well, I'm going to buy a permit or I'm going to reduce my own emissions. It puts a bid out to the market. I'll pay $40 for somebody's chair. Who will get up for $40? Duke Power says, sure, no problem. I've got a, a wind power plant in Kansas that I can actually buy for $40 a ton avoided. You can have uh, my chair. I'll have your cash. Thanks. And that sets the market price for carbon. For $40, by the way, here are the retail price impacts that we could expect for the kinds of things that we buy as consumers. I want to keep moving because I've been given the three-minute mark and I might have to blow it, Andrea, I'm sorry, but I want to get to the spending plan because people will want to argue about it as we should. The government is considered a proxy for society in almost all of our policies. That's another philosophical and ideological difference that people can have about what the role of government is. But nevertheless, if the government is rounding up lots of cash, we have to decide how to spend it. Some of the things that tax and and trade people share in common is that we have to decide who will collect the money, how will they collect the money, who will enforce against cheaters, what will be their method of detecting cheaters, what will the penalty be for cheaters. Tax and trade people also have to ask those same questions and answer them. But then we get to how the money be spent. Well, they're actually also not that different. Once you have a big chunk of money together, you still have to answer the question the same. So tax and traders come back together again about spending. Extreme inequality in America makes this a major social justice issue. Right here I am showing you the distribution of wealth in America before the Bush tax cuts made it even worse. And this shows us that 90% of the households in America altogether, if they combined all of their real estate deeds, cards, cars, college savings, and everything, put it in a wheelbarrow and dumped it in the front yard, would have less than one-third of all the wealth in America. That's 90% of our families. 10% of our families control two-thirds of the wealth in this country. As a result of this matter-of-fact realization... Any carbon price is a regressive tax on Americans unless there is a progressive spending plan that goes with it. Obama's budget chief is counting on $75 billion in annual carbon revenue, but it doesn't come out of thin air. It's not free. It's not new money. It comes out of people's wallets. Therefore, the effect of a carbon price induced by either a cap or a tax does depend on how the money is spent. Here are our options. Uncle Sam puts a cap on greenhouse gas emissions because it's good for society and it's good for the planet, but then it hands out free pollution allowances. When it hands out free pollution allowances to polluters, that is a transfer of wealth from taxpayers of America to the polluters. This is heatedly objected to by environmentalists and budget analysts. So as a result, people talk about cap and auction, where Uncle Sam sells the permission to pollute and polluters have to pay to the American people some amount of money that the Americans then turn around and get to spend. So the question is, who gets the money? Uncle Sam then can give it to consumers. That's cap and dividend. 
But some people think that Americans won't spend their money very well, and in fact there are important policies to pay for that will allow us to invest in a clean energy economy faster. Green jobs proponents are big advocates of cap and invest. And then, of course, we have obligations to international families around the world who will be suffering the, the largest burdens of climate change, and we do have to make a serious offering at the table in Copenhagen for financing, technology transfer, and capacity building. So these are the demands and the divvying up of Solomon's baby for the spending plan. So I'm closing now to recap. Here are some of the thorny issues that cap-and-trade people alone need to be able to answer to American people and the policymakers. How will the allowances be distributed? What will be the terms of offsets allowed? Will there be banking and borrowing terms? And how will we control the price to keep it from spiking or crashing? The tax folks have two very difficult questions to answer themselves. How in the world will we update the tax value when taxes are such a politically toxic topic every year? And what regulations will we combine with a tax to make sure that we actually meet our obligations, to meet our cap? Because the tax won't guarantee it. But both of them leave every room with the same burden, agreeing on the target, who has to pay, and how to catch violators, and how to deal with competitiveness concerns that are unique to very energy-intensive industries subject to global competition. I'll be speaking on that this afternoon. These are the major uh, cap-and-trade systems that are already under development and underway, and I'll be speaking about those in our next session. And this is the California plan for AB32. I just want to make a closing point. The cap-and-trade is not everything, neither is a carbon tax. It's one element in a larger platform. More than three-quarters of all of the reduction in greenhouse gas emissions in California that are anticipated by AB32 come from something other than a price-based policy. Nevertheless, price-based policies are an essential component, and here you see the role that the California Air Resources Board anticipates it to play. I appreciate your time. You can find all of this information in the visual aids online, and I welcome questions with the rest of our excellent panelists. Thank you. The topic of this conference is making climate change policy work in a difficult economy. And some of the strongest arguments against climate change policies right now are that they're going to hurt the economy and can't be done right now because of the economic downturn. What do you say about this argument? Is there any validity in that argument? Should the climate change policies being proposed be any different because of the current economic crisis? So I, mean, I think the answer to that is really what's the best day to invest? It was 20 years ago. And the second best day is today. Um, no question it will cost money. But it's also quite clear from the trends that the global investment in the clean energy sector has been rising. And politically in the United States, we have been falling behind, despite the fact that many of those technologies were actually invented here. So if we are going to follow the Rahm Emanuel, the never waste a good crisis quote, this is certainly a good time to do so. And even beyond the politics of it, it's pretty clear that the energy economy globally is growing fast enough in terms of new innovations that it would be bad economic policy, irrespective of climate or of the current downturn, not to want to play a big role in it. So there's plenty of good arguments at the general level and at the more detailed level of jobs in individual districts to argue that one should be investing in it now. Now, the problem is, of course, that by having been inactive on this issue for arguably 20 years, we're trying to undo something or to get back on the bandwagon for something that we have wasted a huge amount of time, not just 
time itself but, and money, but also the, the requirement that it takes years to build some of these companies. And so this is on a fast track. And what that means, of course, is that we are going to make some mistakes. So not every single dollar, I hate to break it to you guys, of the stimulus money spent on energy will have a five times return. But there's almost no argument for waiting given where the global economy is going, given the need to invest in this area, and given the fact that the climate imperative is out there. And as much as one wants to argue about which session of Congress and how many votes there are, the climate story doesn't really give a damn about which country or which congressman or which senator or which, or which congresswoman gets the credit. And so there's, I think there's arguments up and down the value chain to do this. And since the money is already on the table, and it's arguably enough to jumpstart the process, the hundred or so billion dollars that will go into energy, irrespective of whether we do good or bad on climate change, is there and should be spent. And so you, know, you can argue about if we had 10 more years, we could do it more slowly, how might you do it? Um, all those are good arguments, but given where we are today, there's really not much of an argument not to do it. But I want to let Holmes weigh in on this as well. Thanks. Uh, three very quick rebuttals. One is that if you're going to recover the economy, don't recover the one you used to have if you're trying to build a new one instead. <laughs> Number two is that we are funding this recovery with money we have borrowed from our children. Build them what they need. They own it. They are our lenders. They have oversight and they are watching. Don't misspend their money and make them pay twice for mistakes we can already recognize today. And number three, as Art said earlier, working families actually are most exposed to climate risks and climate burdens, the cost of transition in the United States. If we are already going to be spending, quote, recovery money, we should actually have a progressive spending plan for the recovery as well as a regressive planning, spending plan for a carbon price. Any progressive spending plan for either the recovery or for a carbon tax or tap and trade program will actually have a beneficial effect on all working families and accelerate their path to prosperity. The people who are most concerned and most vocal about the economic impacts are actually members of the shareholding class in that top 10% of households and the people who work for them. And I think that's a really important analysis to have about the voices you hear. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.